I, I probably discovered computers around 76, 77 or so. And in fact, the very first computer I ever experienced up close and personal, not just read about, was a teletypewriter with an acoustic coupler. And, you know, the kids in the audience are going, what's an acoustic coupler, Grandpa? Right? If you remember the movie War Games, right, you dial the phone with a handset and you stick a handset down in these foam cups and it goes, and makes the noises. And that's how you talked to the big giant mainframe, you know, and then literally in the next county over. So that was sort of my first, my first experience. And I was hooked. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a programmer turned consultant, author, and publisher. He's written over a dozen books, including the best-selling seminal software development book, The Pragmatic Programmer and was one of 17 authors of the Agile Manifesto and co-founder of the Agile Alliance. He also co-founded the Pragmatic Bookshelf, which has published award-winning and critically acclaimed books for software developers and has authored books in the science fiction and adventure genres. He is an active musician creating interesting ambient music made with synthesizers like the Moog Matriarch and a vintage Yamaha CS5 under the name Cyanob. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a man who has a knack for stirring things up, someone who has seen it and fixed it before, Andy Hunt. Andy, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on to the show today. I really appreciate having you here. Oh, thanks for having me. Always, always a delight to, to get out and chat and see what folks are up to. Yeah, man. It, your books are a huge hit with the data science community and software developers all around the world. Definitely fanboy moment here talking to a celebrity. So I'm um, really honored to have you here. So let's learn a little bit more about you. Talk to us a little bit about where you grew up and what was it like there? So not very interesting. The town wasn't very interesting. You know, certainly it was a small rural town, rural in the sense that there were cows in fields by the side of the road. You know, not very high tech. You had to you couldn't walk really to a friend's house. You had to, to drive or be driven. You know, so it was pretty you know, spread out that in that regard. But it was, you know, I, I think for the time it was sort of a typical, typical growing up kind of situation. You, know, you, you went outside and played uh, until it was dark, you know, in the fields with sticks and twigs and, you know, the things that, you know, you would do in that circumstances. But what was what was interesting, I thought, so this was this would have been the you know mid seventies, late seventies or so when I was in high school, that we had a family friend who worked from home. He was part of a think tank at a large, you know, Fortune 10, Fortune 5, you know, kind of company. And he worked for the think tank. So 
his claim to fame was he'd be mowing the yard, puttering around their Victorian mansion that was was downtown, and uh, he'd have a thought and run into his study, you know, with this you know nicely appointed library. You know, you can picture it, right? You know, the bookshelves and first editions and this kind of stuff. He'd run into his desk in his library and jot down his thoughts because it's not like he had a computer in his house in you know, 75, 76, whenever this was, 74. But I thought that was that that really struck me as wow, you could you could make a living thinking and pondering and you know, run into your home office, which was a radical. I mean, nobody had a home office back then, right? That was a, a very radical idea, but it kind of stuck with me. I was like, well, there could be something to this. And then I, I probably discovered computers around 76, 77 or so. And in fact, the very first computer I ever experienced up close and personal, not just read about, was a teletypewriter with an acoustic coupler. And, you know, the kids in the audience are going, what's an acoustic coupler, Grandpa? Right? If you remember the movie War Games, right, you dial the phone with the handset and you stick the handset down in these foam cups and it goes, it makes the noises. And that's how you talked to the big giant mainframe, you know, and then literally in the next county over. So that was sort of my first my first experience and I was hooked, right? Of course, right. What's the first thing you do, right? You write the little program to print out asterisks and, you know, make a little thing and, and, you know, maybe Hangman, uh, you know, the Star Trek lander, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of stuff. But as soon as I, as soon as I sort of saw what a computer was and what it could do, I was kind of hooked. It's like, this is cool. I mean, this is a long way from Star Trek, right? You can't talk to it. It can't think for you, but the potential is here. So I, I was hooked at a really early age. And so from that early age, did you just decide I'm going to go to school and I'm going to study computers and, and software? And was that kind of what you had imagined your future would look like at that age? Pretty much. Yeah, I, it was it was like, this is something I want to I want to go into. I want to do. And I got my, my very first computer was 6502 based chip and programmed it in assembly language, you know, kind of deal. And that, you know, that was, that was a lot of fun back then because you were really so close to the hardware. I wrote a, a, one of the, one of my very first programs was a word processor that built up the text by, you know, sticking characters in the video memory, right? You know, you had, you had this chunk of memory that was memory mapped straight to the display. And, you know, it's kind of funny. That was insanely fast, you know, hardware speeds. And you're slogging it today with, you know, I don't know, IntelliJ or, or VS Code or whatever. It's like, you know, we, we've we gained a lot, but we, we've lost some immediacy <laughs> when you need, you know, 15 gig of RAM just to fire up an editor, you know, and type something. So, yeah, I kind of I kind of miss the simpler days, uh, you know, sometimes. <laughs> So that kind of leads very nicely to my next question, because this is something that, you know, I'm, I'm not a, you know, software developer by trade. I came up as a statistician and studied mathematics in grad school and all that stuff. But what is the difference between a software developer and a software engineer? Well, I'm not sure there's a huge difference. There's shades of gray and it really kind of depends on the focus. So, you know, back in the day, you know, certainly when I was you know just out of college and young, you would be introduced at a family gathering or a party as, oh, he's into, he's in computers, you know, and that kind of covered it. That, that was just like, oh, okay, we know nothing about that. It's, it's, it's one of these computer folks. And now it's like, well, I'm a senior DevOps engineer. It, it, you know, it's very, very specific. So, 
you know, I tend to sort of sort it as you've got people who consider themselves really just coders, just programmers. So they're not doing a lot of design work. They're just kind of schlumping along. And maybe that's kind of the more novice end of the spectrum when you're, you're just starting out in the industry and you're still grappling with how do I convey my thoughts to the computer who keeps telling me I'm missing a damn semicolon or a tab or curly brace or whatever the, uh, you know, it might be. And then it's a matter of sort of, you know, I tend to think of a software engineer as someone who's more oriented on systems program, you know, more oriented on maybe deployment and, you know, container orchestration and, you know, writing their own compiler for fun in the evening, you know, those sorts of things, as opposed to more of an application developer. And, you know, as you kind of go up the food chain, I've always viewed that a software developer is kind of, you know, what what I would want to aspire to, right? That's that's the person who can go in and talk to the user, understand their business, understand their needs, and envision an architecture and envision the, the tools and the things that will make that vision come to pass which involves code. It also involves architecture, it involves engineering, it involves a ton of communication skills. So it's really, to me, that's kind of the superset of you're able to do it all. You know, it, it, I kind of laugh because, you know, people use the phrase full stack developer and I laugh because it's not. I mean, you're talking about, you know, some front end web technologies and some server technologies. A full stack developer is comfortable with 6502 assembler all the way up to international treaties, right? Because that's what it, that's what it ends up being, you know. As it, you know, I've I've been running the Pragmatic Bookshelf since well, well, Dave Thomas and I founded it in '03. So do the math that that's been you know a decade and a half plus. I mean that that's been some years. You know, when you run your own international popular business, you literally run into problems with you know treaties and tax you know taxation or trade routes. You know, it sounds like Star Wars. But, you know, that that stuff is part of your business. And then you're debugging, you know, some bit of music tech or, or something on your, your laptop that's wrong. And you're down with, you know, transistors and gates and, you know, that level of stuff. So, yeah, if you're fluent from the hardware level up to the sort of, you know, geosocial fabric that you're enmeshed in, that's a full stack developer. And and everything else is various specialties, you know, uh, which is fine. And, you know, in a way, that's one of the good things I think has happened as the industry has matured, it's gone from being, I'm in computers, which can mean anything from like, I can fix your printer, you know, up to, you know, really being able to, to architect the future, uh, not to be too, too grandiose about it, but you know, that that's kind of, kind of what you're doing. Yeah. I really, really like that. Thank you so much for, uh, for going deep on that. I appreciate that. So speaking of, you know, the pragmatic bookshelf, you got the pragmatic programmer, pragmatic thinking. What is it with this pragmatic stuff? What does that mean to you? Well, it, it's the actual origin story is kind of funny because back in the day when, you know, before there was Google, before there was long before there was Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or Insta or any of these, these sorts of things, there was Usenet. And you had articles going back and forth. You had interest groups. You had Usenet groups uh, where you could discuss things. And there was one, you know, the sort of popular watering hole of the day was comp.object. So think of that in, in modern parlance, that'd be, you know, R slash object oriented programming or, you know, something like that. And there was a ongoing, very <clears throat> spirited debate about dogmatism and pragmatism and craft and is programming craft or art. 
And there was certainly one gentleman, possibly a set of them, who really advocated a very, what we consider a dogmatic approach, being a slave to process, a slave to your ideology. It has to be this way because that's the way it is. It's how God intended it. And this is, this is the thing. And that just rubbed us so much the wrong way. It's like, no, you, you don't want to be a slave to your process. You don't want to be a slave to any particular ideology, whether it's object orientation or functional programming or, you know, whatever it might be. You want to focus on outcomes, you know, keep eye on the prize. What is it you're actually trying to accomplish and really focus on that and don't get uh, caught in the trap of doing the same old thing unquestioningly, you know, ask the questions, focus on the outcomes and do, you know, the pragmatic thing is, well, this is what it, this looks like. This is what's going to work to do that. Maybe we've never done it before. Maybe that violates our, our ideology or violates our process, but it's what we need to do. So do that. I like that a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, so is this like a subtle mindset? Like it's not a really a subtle mindset shift. It's a massive mindset shift. Do you think it's ever too late in your career as a software developer, software engineer to to start thinking like this? What if you're somebody who's just been constrained by processes, you know, the entire first half of your career is thinking that it's hard to break out of that. And interestingly, you kind of see that even now with people who have fallen prey to, to an over-reliance or over-adherence to Scrum. You know, one of the things that had, and I've, I've mentioned this on, on multiple interviews for years. In fact, I actually just saw a reference back in like, I think it was like 2006 saying, my God, people are getting it wrong. They're misunderstanding. And, you know, they get so caught up in trying to do Scrum right, whatever the hell that means, that they're not getting software out the door and they're not solving their users' business issues. They're, they're not creating value because they're, you know, arguing how many angels can dance on the head of a pin sort of thing. You know, are we doing story points the right way? Well, no, if you're doing story points, you're doing it wrong right out of the gate. So don't do that, you know? Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's really hard when you're, especially when you're in an organization that has kind of slid into a bureaucratic sludge, which, which happens. In fact, if you look at uh, this research, the Westrom Continuum is a really interesting look at different types of organizations. And on the, the upper end, and what, what we would like to see is a pragmatic, you know, agile, flexible kind of thing, they call generative. And that's where the information flows freely. Uh, everyone's able to share ideas and bounce things off each other without fear that you're going to get your butt kicked or get demoted or get in trouble for saying the wrong thing or anything like that. It's a free flow of ideas. You experiment, you try things. And those are the organizations that are high performing and produce a lot of value. At the other end of the spectrum, you get the pathological organization where people hoard information. You know, it's like their little fiefdom. They, they don't want you to know because they're in charge of it, damn it. And you get these, this kind of friction built up. And that's the kind of organization that really loves to hide behind the rules and behind, hide behind the process. It's like, well, yes, that's a good idea, but we can't do that because you didn't fill out the right forms. You didn't go through proper channels. You didn't, you know, genuflect to the great God of COBOL or whatever, <laughs> whatever they're into. And, you know, that happens. Organizations slide into that. People slide into that. And they end up being low performing. These are the places where you then, you know, you see on the news massive layoffs and some startup comes into their industry and 
eats them alive. And, you know, that's, that's just how it goes. So, yeah, that's a, that's a big risk. That's a big danger. It absolutely happens. And, you know, if you find yourself in that kind of an organization or find that you've fallen into that kind of mindset, you should do something about it. <laughs> you know, you should try to break out of that. Martin Fowler had a great quote, which I love to use. He's like, well, you really have two choices. You can change your organization or change your organization. You know, if, if you can, if you can affect the change where you are, that's great. If you can't, you know, maybe you shouldn't stay there. You should go somewhere else. Yeah, I think it was in Pragmatic Programmer, uh, you recanted a story where there was people who were working, at, I believe it was like on a factory floor. And as a form of defiance, they started to just follow the rules religiously and things just slow down to complete halt. Yeah, that, that, that's an actual thing. It's it's called work to rule, and it's it's something that like uh, like labor unions use when they're in a management dispute. They're like, all right, well, we're just going to slam our productivity down by doing exactly what the job says. Which, of course, it, you know, that's not how it works, right? If the job was that easy to automate then a bloody robot or a conveyor belt would be doing it, right? But we're hired to do the things that robots or AI or neural nets and machine learning can't do because it needs creativity. And there's a really interesting dynamic there. You know, the, these sort of, of pathologic bureaucratic organizations try to optimize their processes. So they try to nail down and, and remove variants. And that's great. If you're running like a manufacturing line and a production line, you want to reduce variants. You want everything to come out the same way. But if you're doing any kind of creative, inventive work, you need the exact opposite of that. You need as much variation as you can, as you can have. It's like trying to do, you know, a seed evolution or, or genetic programming or something. You need as much variation so that you can have evolutionary processes pick the best way forward out of it. I know it's one of my favorite stories trying to explain how AI works to, to a layperson, right? When my son was in sixth grade, maybe sixth grade, which was actually kind of cool. They had them do a little AI project in, I think in some Python libraries. And the idea was you had to make this little stick figure walk across this virtual landscape. So you had to design legs basically using a physics library. Well, interestingly, by just sort of by happenstance, the way he coded it, there was a bug in the physics library. And so his AI learned how to fly, which, it, I mean, total crack up, right? Because that is exactly what AI does. It doesn't care about you filling out the right forms or the protocol. It will, it's trying to find the best path. And if that happens to exploit cosmic rays hitting the chip and quantum effects and a bug in the library and you know the fact that it's facing east instead of west, it doesn't care. It'll it, it right. It's almost the the definition of pragmatic. It will do what it needs to do to you know uh, hit the uh, the assigned target, whatever that might be, which can be surprising sometimes. But I love that story because that that really to me points out the you know that's what AI is all about. And and in a way that again, that's really kind of the essence of pragmatism. It's like, all right, if the quantum effects are going to do it for us, well, let's use that. <laughs> It's really cool that they, you know, getting introduced to this stuff at such a young age. I mean, Brilliant. for for context, I was born in 1983. I'm almost 38 now. And I was first introduced to computers probably around that age, maybe a little bit younger, like maybe fourth or fifth grade. I had like, a, I think it was like a 386 and had like Windows 3, not even 3.1. Like it was pretty old school. And um, I, I would, you know, fell in love with computers as well. I remember my mom bought me a book, DOS for Dummies. 
um, and you know followed along with that and for whatever various reasons i kind of veered off that path and have recently been returning to this thing that i've loved as a child but i feel like at, at this age 37 years old like you know it's a little bit old right but you know it, it's just it for me to become a super wonderful software engineer, software developer, I feel like it would require too much focused time and effort. So I'm wondering, is it possible for me to be able to think like a software engineer, like an exceptional software engineer, software developer without necessarily being one? I, I think so. And it's funny, you talk about, you know, early experiences and, you know, starting with the 386. I, I kind of, a lot of folks are amazed when I tell them that, you know, I was using email before there was an at sign. We used bang paths. There was not an at sign. That wasn't a thing. There was no IBM PC. There was no 8086. We had Z80 chips and, you know, 6502s and, and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, getting back to sort of like at what age and what skill set you need. Yes, you do need the the ability to have sustained uninterrupted focus. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, especially now with, you know, the pandemic, with the political instability in the U.S., all these other sorts of issues, it's really hard to sort of focus on, you know, your task, your job and not watch Twitter and Reddit and the news and, you know, all these, these sorts of, of uh, dramatic things that, you know, are happening in the background, you're kind of keeping an eye on. But the, the two keys, I think, for being able to, to get into the programming mindset, you need a pretty significant working memory, which you lose as you get older. You know, and I, I think that that's, that's an advantage that youth has. You can kind of hold more in your head at once. And that, that's important. You, you need to be able to do that. And you need that ability to sort of focus on one thing long enough to sort of get through it. And you need the ability to kind of zoom in and zoom out at different levels of abstraction and know that for what I'm doing here, this is an appropriate level of abstraction. So a lot of beginning programmers will fall into a trap where they have what's called primitive obsession. Everything is an int or a string or a Boolean, and they don't use higher order data structures to, to do things. But then, you know, you get that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, right? You, you, you learn some stuff and then they go the other way and everything's an abstraction and you get nightmares like, you know, Java's service manager, Impl, you know, this, this 130 character long class name, uh, you know, kind of thing where you've abstracted yourself into your navel and have disappeared, <laughs> you know, kind of like an Ouroboros, you've just, you know, disappeared in yourself. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, you just need the experience to be able to know what's at the right level. So, yeah, I mean, I think you can, I think you can start and learn to programming, learn to program, you know, really at any age, you know, up until the point, I mean, you up to a certain point where you've hit, you know, an elderly state where you've, you've lost working memory and lost some cognitive ability, which is going to happen to all of us, you know, sadly, you know, one of these days, but, you know, barring that it's like, yeah, you can start now as a separate diatribe. I personally think that sort of right now in the last couple of years, the world of programming sucks. It's an embarrassment. You know, this, this sort of cobbled together Rube Goldberg machine nightmare of, you know, CSS and HTML and JavaScript, which is a nightmare of a language. And bless their hearts. I mean, they've been trying, they've added some nice features to it. They've really, you know, there are folks trying to make this 
make this work and make this better. But it's got some you know horrible legacy edges to it, as does HTML and, and CSS and the whole you know the whole HTTP protocol and the, you know that whole world is really kind of pasted together, not really intended for what we're ending up using it from. And then you get these swings of, well, should you have a fat client and a thin server or a fat server and a thin client? Should everything be a client-side library and it's all in you know, React or whatever? Should it all be done server-side, server-side rendering and you pump it down? And that's almost like, you know, hem lengths with fashion. It, it comes and goes, it goes up, it goes down, it goes back. But I think right now, you know, the any of these ecosystems that have giant repositories like NPM, you know, for, for JavaScript programming, I mean, that's just a security and performance nightmare, right? You install something even, well, I think I saw the other day, if you install like a basic hello world in React, it brings in something like 5,000 modules and you have no idea what those are or who wrote them or where they came from or whether it was from, you know, a foreign adversary government slipping something in there or some high school kid who didn't know what he was doing or something like LeftPad, which disappeared entirely out of the repo and broke half the internet. What was that? A couple of years ago, I guess, two years, two, three years ago. So yeah, right now it's a mess. I was helping a friend last week try to install Ruby on his latest edition of Mac OS and it was a nightmare. The latest edition of this didn't work with the version of that. And there were problems with this other thing. And, you know, it's kind of embarrassing at the moment. The good news is I'm not the only one who thinks this. And there's some very smart people working on things saying, okay, you know, now that as, as the industry has evolved, we've gotten to sort of this point. Now we've got a better idea of how this stuff should work. Let's look at these, you know, alternative ideas and better ways of doing things and, you know, push the envelope forward. And I'm hoping in the next, you know, three, four year time frame, we'll kind of start to dig ourselves out of the, you know, the current legacy patchwork nightmare and look at some new ways of doing stuff. Uh, I know the, in the Elixir programming language, the stuff they're doing with Live View is really very interesting. And it's, it's a different way of programming on the web. And it's brilliantly fast and responsive with low overhead and low number of dependencies and, you know, things like that, that folks are working on that aren't you know, necessarily ready for prime time yet will be. And that'll be very interesting. So given that the current state of programming sucks, everybody needs to go pick up a, a copy of Pragmatic Programmer to learn how to not suck. Definitely. But if there was, if there was one just what, cause this book is chock full of amazing tips and advice, but if there's one tip that you think programmers should start implementing today which one would that be it's 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 a hard question right so there's there's a lot of interesting stuff i think the two probably the two most critical tips to me and and one would apply even if you're not a programmer but if you're working with programmers then our discussion of tracer bullet development i think is really critical because you know folks have been waving their hands and shouting saying you have to do iterative and incremental development you have to do ci cd you know, continuous integration, continuous deployment. And the bosses are like, you know, why? It's expensive. The pipeline failed. We don't have an engineer to fix it. Wah, wah, wah. They don't really understand the idea that you've got to break it down into the smallest possible pieces. You know, one at two lines of code, check it, test it. You have someone look at it who's going to use it, say, yes, that's what I want it to do. And then go on and do the next thing. You know, we again we slip into these old habits of doing, okay, 
even a two-week iteration. That's ridiculous. That's too long. That's ridiculous. Now you've got a ton of features that somebody has to go through and review this big pile of stuff. And you know what happens when you're given a big pile of stuff to do? You know, you're going to skate over it. You're going to give it a you know thing. But here's one small thing. Look at this. Okay, great. Here's another small thing. Look at that. Okay, great. And you know, working in that very small, very piecemeal approach so that you can get feedback and make adjustments in real time is is absolutely critical and you you have you really have to do that in this day and age if you don't again someone who does do that's going to eat your lunch you know so that that's a very important one for like a personal practice or tip something from the book that any programmer should do i would have to say that there's a tip in there called build your knowledge portfolio and that speaks to continuous learning which is an absolutely critical ingredient to success. You know, I, there was an interview with Elon Musk not too long ago where he reads what a book or five a night. Just, you know, here's an interesting book on, you know, economic patterns. Here's an interesting book on neuroscience. Here's an interesting book on O-ring failures, on jet engines, whatever, you know, just plow through the stuff. That really is what it takes. And unfortunately, our, our educational system ha- lacks a lot in this day and age. It still has some kind of 19th century leftovers. You know, even the idea that that there's a teacher, really. You don't get taught. You have to learn. It's it's on you. It's on the learner. So we kind of look at that whole relationship sort of the wrong way around. And, you know, I've gone in as, as a consultant and told people that, you know, the learning is up to you. Your company's not going to spoon feed it to you. You're not just going to suddenly learn how to orchestrate a Kubernetes cluster by osmosis. I mean, you have to dig in and learn this stuff. You know, you want to know how to set up a, a neural net to do machine learning or whatever. Well, you know, you're not just going to grab a couple of libraries and copy and paste some code from Stack Overflow. I, I mean, people do, but that doesn't work out really well. You actually really have to dig in and learn how the stuff works. And that, you know, means more than reading a couple blog posts or a couple YouTube videos you need, you know, I mean, this is a little self-serving. It's like, you have to go out and buy books. You have to look at long form. And even if it's not a book, but you have to get to the experts and the qualified experts and see what they're recommending, what they're saying, see how they've learned it, see what their tips and, and tricks are. And that's really an ongoing process. It never stops. There was a study some years back that said, and this wasn't specific to computer science. I hope the rate's a little different for us, but it said, you know, across the population, most people never read a book in the subject that they graduated in once they graduated. So they go to uni, they, they go to, to, to college and they get a degree in, in whatever, and they never touch another book in that subject after they graduate. And, you know, to me, that's, just, that's insane with the rate of change that we're seeing in the world today. And that's another, you know, I'm going to head off on a million tangents as we go through here, but, you know, people complain about how fast things are changing and how hard it is to kind of keep up. And yes, 100% agree, but you also have to consider that what you're experiencing right now is the slowest rate of change you'll experience in your lifetime. It's monotonically increasing. It's just going to get worse or better. It, it, it's going to increase, you know, as we go along. And that's, uh, you know, especially given the, the events of the last uh, year or two, that's a very sobering thought because a lot of things have changed, especially with the pandemic. 
I love this idea that, you know, anyone who on their, their, you know, 2019 job performance, 360 reviews, you know, where do you see yourself next year? And what are you going to be doing the next year? It's like, yeah, flush it. That all rubbish that all went out the window, right? None of that happened. It's like, oh, or we're going to do this uh, instead, (laughs) you know, but that really, I mean, that was a very dramatic event and it's, I hate to say this, but this was the first pandemic of the century. It's not going to be the last one. You know, you talk to the the virologists and the folks who study these things. It's like there is a large class of these things that could easily break out just like this one did. You've got, you know, we have such wonderful transportation with everyone mixing from all over the globe, bringing any bat virus from here to there and this and that. It's going to happen. So, you know, it's the first one. But I think it's way it's been a really good wake up call to really point out that change literally is constant and you have to be prepared for that. So, you know, a lot of the tips in the Pragmatic Programmer book and a lot of the uh, background information in the Thinking and Learning book are really about how to deal with change, how to embrace change. And I like to remind people, you know, when the whole Agile movement kind of started, Kent Beck's first book on extreme programming, which I still recommend people read, the subtitle of that book was Embrace Change. Not grit your teeth and put up with change, but embrace change, harness it, use it as a competitive advantage. And, you know, after after everyone's been sort of <laughs> beaten up over the last year with with uh, you know, so many unexpected changes, that's kind of a hard kind of a hard pill to swallow. But that's the world. That's that's where we are. Speaking of pills to swallow, like, you know, Alice in Wonderland, you talk about uh, the Red Queen effect. Right. That's kind of what you're describing. Right. Where you have to I think it's just it, you have to keep running just to stay in place right keep up keep learning keep keep uh, upgrading your skills to to stay in place i mean i i do this kind of every summer i go back to the basics of my field you know math mathematician and, and statistician just to remind myself of concepts but like i hate textbooks so i read books like this i've got like the the manga guide to linear algebra and, and then the uh, the cartoon guide to statistics just to just because i want that stuff to stay fresh in my mind but yeah i'd love to get into some of these concepts that you talk about in pragmatic thinking and learning. This book is amazing. Everybody listening, please pick it up. This is a uh, one of my favorite books for sure. So let's start off talking about what is expertise and why is it so difficult to articulate? So a couple of concepts to unpack there. Expertise results from experience. You have to have done it and done a lot of it. The more of it you do, the more expertise you build up. And what's actually happening is you're strengthening various neural connections in your brain. You're growing regions of the brain. You know, it, it's it's easiest, easy for us to forget, you know, what the brain and consciousness and the mind really are all about and how they work. And interestingly, our concept of mind sort of follows along with the the technology of the world at the time. So, you know, way back in the day, you know, might have conceived of the mind in very, very naturalistic terms, you know, as as a lion or a predator or, you know, a wheat field or something like that. And then in the, you know, 19th century, it's like, well, the the brain's like clockwork. It's very mechanistic. it's It's a mechanical process. And, you know, now it's kind of fashionable to think of it as a computer. You know, well, it's just the software. You get have it running on the hardware of the brain and, and this and that. And, you know, none of those models are really quite correct because the big part we leave out is that if the brain is a machine, 
it's a self-modifying machine. It rewires itself constantly in, in response to stimuli and usage patterns and this sort of thing. And that's a really profound thought. And, you know, somewhere in the book, I talk about the research of, of Carol Dweck, who did this study that showed that if you believe you can be a lifelong learner and you can just pick up new skills as you need them and go through life, then if you believe that, your brain will rewire itself to make that possible. If you were told in school that you're a dummy, that you know you can't ever learn anything, that you know you're not good at math. Oh my God! If, you know I'm not a violent person, but I would shoot every teacher who told some girl, "Oh, girls aren't good at math. You don't need to study that." Right? Bullshit. Hundred percent legit bullshit. The problem with that is if if you've been told you know by an authority figure, by a teacher that you can't learn something, and then you believe it then your brain wires itself so that you're not going to be able to learn it. it it's a self-modifying machine and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, which it, to me, it's criminal. It's absolutely criminal. So, you know, we've got the self-modifying machine working there. And as you do stuff, as you're working, learning programming, learning statistics, learning mathematics, whatever it might be, you build up these different thought patterns, you strengthen these connections. So expertise becomes the sort of sum total of discrete memory, ways of thinking, problem solving, different approaches to problem solving, the skills, and both the conscious and the unconscious. And, you know, that just, it makes this stew of expertise. And so what happens is, as you become expert at something, and you rely more on intuition and rely more on these non-conscious the thought processes in the brain, you can arrive at a decision in an instant, but not have any way to backtrack and say, well, how did I arrive at that? You know, what bits of memory, you know, what thread did I follow through consciousness to arrive at that? No idea, right? And this happens, you know, interviews with doctors. It's like, well, that's wonderful diagnosis, doctor. How did you determine that? Well, he didn't look right. She didn't look right. You know, what does that mean? I, I don't know. It's just, it, you know, a firefighter. Well, you know, I didn't feel right going onto that floor. So we did this thing instead. And then the thing collapses. Well, how did you know? I don't know. It just, it felt wrong. And that's the interesting thing. So this is their intuition speaking from, you know, this, this complex self-modifying mass of everything going on in your head. And it's usually right built up from all this experience, from, from pattern matching, from seeing similar things before, but it's definitely not something you can always be articulate about. You know, you you just know. And it turns out that this expertise isn't binary on or off, right? It's more like a, a spectrum. And you talk about the spectrum in the book as well, um, the, the Dreyfus model. Uh, can you talk to us about what this is and and why is it important that we understand this uh, Dreyfus model? So this was a, a, an interesting thing that my wife actually uh, came across. She has a doctorate in nursing. And there was a popular book back, I think the first edition came out late 70s, early 80s on From Novice to Expert, uh, looking at, you know, how expertise works in the field and what you can do about it. And that drew on the research of the Dreyfus brothers. The Dreyfus brothers wanted to build an AI back in the day. And they wanted to build an AI that would learn skills the same way that people learn skills. Well, the problem was no one had a good handle on how people actually learn skills at the moment. So they kind of had to crack that nut first. And so they proposed this model that you go through the sort of, you know, five different phases or stages. And they're not 
they're not strict. You know, you don't go from one to the other over day. Again, it's a spectrum from novice to expert. So you start off as a novice with no experience, no expertise. You have to be given rules to follow to be effective. Do this. When that happens, do this other thing. Okay, great. Then you move up to be an advanced beginner where you can kind of start to figure stuff out a little bit on your own, but you still can't understand or appreciate the big picture. And then you get up to competent and that's where, you know, you're doing the stuff. You're able to do it. You're working with it. You still have to, you know, you still struggle with some things, but but you can get it done. Then you move up to proficient and that's where you start to get into this kind of unconscious competence. You're doing it and you don't even think about it. It's second nature. And then finally you end up as an expert where you can teach others. You can share it. You, you rely on intuition instead of relying on the rules. You know, you see yourself as part of the system, not as a, a discrete observer of the system, which a novice would tend to do. And that was one of the most interesting things I think about the Dreyfus model was this notion that an expert is not just a smarter novice, that you fundamentally change what kind of mental models you use. If you use mental models at all, right, novices don't, how you problem solve how you move from this reliance on rules to intuition, how you appreciate systems thinking that, you know, as an expert, you realize you're part of the system. You're not just a hired gun or, or off to the side. You're actually part of it. Whereas a novice views, you know, I'm here and the system is over there. And these are sort of different things. Um, and they're not. Um, so, you know, this whole, there's a number of different axes that change as you gain expertise and, and get, closer toward expert. Interestingly, in most fields, most people never get beyond advanced beginner. They get to a point where it's kind of good enough and they stop. You know, I think that's true in, in programming as well. You get someone who can slap a couple of libraries together and you know copy and paste some code to do what they need to do. And that's good enough. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if that's all you need, dynamite, you know, awesome. You know, if you're trying to be a leader in your field and, and you know, run a multi-million dollar operation or something, you probably need a little more than that. How can we objectively kind of look at ourselves, look at our skill set and, you know, because you could you can have 10 years of experience, but it's the same one year of experience times nine, right? Oh, or or it could be progressively getting difficult. So what's a good way for us to kind of accurately self-assess where we would fall on this spectrum? So interestingly, and, and there's there are some specific things uh, and there's there's lists in the books of the characteristics at each of the levels. So you can kind of look at that list and say, OK, this this kind of sounds like me. You know, for instance, if you're at the novice or advanced beginner phase, you don't really want the big picture. It's like when the VP of marketing or accounting comes in and gives an hour long presentation and you're just screaming, oh, my God, this has nothing to do with me. I don't, Yes, it's the big picture, but I don't care. This doesn't apply to me. That's an indication that for whatever that topic area is, you're on, you know, one of the more introductory levels, whereas the expert will be, will understand, well, this is a system and yes, this affects me. And this is something I need to pay attention to. So, so sort of, sort of things like that, being able to hone in on a specific problem area, you know, if you can, if someone's saying, oh, I'm stuck on this bug, can you come and look at my screen? If you look at the screen and go right to the point, go, well, this looks suspicious, then you've got more expertise than not. If you start looking at everything and you don't know where, where you're looking for, then you're on you know, the more introductory novice end of things. Um, so there's some specific things like that you can look at. But in general, there's a problem where being able to accurately self-assess your own performance 
is something that really only comes in at the higher skill levels. You need to be kind of at the proficient level to be able to accurately self-assess what you're doing. And this is where you get into, you know, the, like the Dunning-Kruger effect, where when you're a novice, you're like, oh, this is easy. I can do anything. I don't know why they make a fuss about it. And yeah, it, it ain't so. Um, and then there's a story in the book, which I just absolutely love. It, it cracks me up. It shouldn't. It, it's kind of evil of me to laugh at, but it's just wonderful. This, this poor fellow goes in to rob a bank, broad daylight, walks in to rob the bank, and it does his business. And you know, the cops follow him home and arrest him. And he's he's dumbfounded. He's he's thunderstruck. How on earth did you find me? And they're like, dude, we you know we saw you on the security cameras. You were right there. We followed you home. He's like, well, you couldn't have seen me. I was wearing the juice. I, I'm I'm sorry, sir. The the what? Everyone knows if you put lemon juice on your face, you're invisible to security cameras. But um bump um. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of funny to, to, you know, look at an incident like that, that that's written up in the literature and the journals and say, oh, you know, this, this, this poor fellow, you know, misunderstood. But, you know, that level of falling for, you know, kind of, of, of old wives story or, or common, you know, memes on the Internet. I mean, God, we're still doing that. You know, we've got flat earthers. We've got people who, you know, believe the election was stolen or believe that the virus has microchips in it, that, you know, Bill Gates is going to control your mind and, and steal all your data. And they're posting this on Facebook, which has already done all of that. So it's, it's kind of ironic, but, you know, I won't, I won't get into that. But, you know, when you're a novice at a, uh, any particular subject, you know, whether it's it's computing or geopolitics or, or virology or astrophysics, you know, it's it's really easy to fall prey to misinformation because you, you literally don't have the expertise or the critical thinking skills to know any better. So oh, it sounds inflammatory. I'll click on it. And there you go. And that's a real danger. We We don't really teach critical thinking skills in school. We don't teach things like systems thinking. Uh, and there was an interesting conversation very recently, like, like last week or two, somebody on Twitter posted that they were teaching their 11-year-old you know, critical thinking skills, and it was working brilliantly. And they had just had a conversation with a college professor saying, oh, college kids are too young to teach that too. That has to be a post, you know, post-grad activity. And uh, you know, I, I mean, that stuff makes me crazy. It's like, you know, I've seen, you know, I've seen literally five and six year olds dancing around on an iPad, having no problem at all navigating it and working stuff. And even understanding that, oh, mom says I can only buy the apps that have five star ratings because those have been vetted apparently and it's popular and I shouldn't buy the game that has one star and only a few, you know, a few developers, you know, that this could be a scam. But five and six year olds understand that. Right. But we don't we don't teach that kind of thinking at a, certainly not at a young age. And we absolutely need to, for the century that we're in and the one that we're heading into, we have to have those skills at an early age or things will fall apart and we'll end up like some, you know, science fiction story with the Eloy and the Morlocks. And, you know, you've got a whole swath of the population who doesn't understand how the thing works. You know, I mean, there's a reason why science fiction paints these pictures because it's a possibility it's 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 in the cards there and you know we need to we need to fight that yeah it reminds me uh, that everyone should take into consideration the royal society's motto nullius in verba take no one's word for it go and see for yourself figure it out so in the book you also talk about uh, since we're talking about how 
through the ages, people are trying to conceptualize the mind in terms of whatever machine is the, the big machine of that era. And you talk about the dual CPU um, kind of functionality of the mind, of the brain. Talk to us about that. So this, this was, uh, again, a lot to unpack in that idea. The, um, the old school of thought was that you had sort of left brain and right brain thinking. And folks got Nobel Prizes on this, and there's a lot of studies and whatnot. And it turned out that, of course, it's much more complicated than that. And what we thought of as discrete hemispheres doing tasks are actually these different areas of network activation that work in tandem. So it's almost like having you know, uh, clouds of lightning storms that are kind of hitting all over the brain. And in certain patterns, certain sequences, you get one particular style of processing and these others integrate for this other style of processing. So conceptually, if you think of it as like two different CPUs, you've got this one uh, method of brain processing that's very much like a classical Van Neumann processor. It in, executes instructions step-by-step step in order. It's pretty slow. It operates at about, you know, 110 baud, you know, like the old acoustic couplers. It's about the speed of speech. And that's how it works. That CPU also has like an idle loop. So if it's not being used, it just sits there and does the monkey chatter, which all the yoga and meditation tries to quiet down. Well, that's where it comes from. It's this CPU number one, very linear, you know, in order. CPU number two is not like that. It's asynchronous. It's more like a magical pattern matching engine, like a, a signal processor or GPU or, or something like that. It will do searches in the background. So if I ask some some you know trivia question, it'll it'll oh I don't know, but it'll sit there and work on it asynchronously. And then the next day in the shower or mowing the yard or something, it pops into your head, oh, you know, it was so and so. Uh, that's because this asynchronous process was sitting there chunking away. And a lot of the things that we ascribe to sort of creative thinking, that, that sort of R mode, right brain you know, kind of thinking, are this second CPU asynchronous thought processes. And there, it's a little slippery because these are non-conscious processes. They're not synchronous processes. So it's a little harder to try to harvest ideas that are coming up to you that way. But this is what, you know, really creative people are able to tap into and able to do. And we're at a bit of a disadvantage because depending on your activity, like for instance, if I'm sitting typing at a keyboard, I'm focused on symbolic representation. I'm, I'm punching letters and a lot of curly braces and semicolons, and I'm watching these symbols on the screen. And that very action kind of hogs the bus, if you will, you know, keeping with the computer metaphor, into the CPU one or L mode kind of processing, and it shuts off the creative mode. And that's why you know, people say, you know, if I'm stuck on a, a problem, what's, what can I do? The number one thing you can do is stand up and step away from the keyboard, go for a walk, get, get away from symbols, and don't think about the problem specifically, just kind of don't think about anything. And, you know, this happens to, you know, coders all the time, right? You're stuck on a bug, you get up, you walk to the restroom, you go out to your car, whatever, and you're halfway there and, oh, I know what it is, right? It pops into your head. And that's, that's exactly how that sort of mechanism works. So that's kind of how, how the, these two things are and how it sort of relates to what's historically thought of as right brain and left brain, even though that's not an accurate term, it's areas of activation energy. 
but we do have different processes that are better for different things. And a lot of what's in the Pragmatic Thinking and Learning book are different kind of tips and techniques to try to harvest these kind of you know, non-conscious asynchronous ideas, you know, how to break that lock, that symbolic L-mode lock and free up more resources. Stepping away from the keyboard is, is a, great, a great start. But then, so you're out, you know, you're out in nature, you're on a, you're on a hike, you're in the car, whatever, and you, that's when the idea pops in. And this is, this is the kind of funny problem because now you're not at the keyboard and you've got this great idea. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh, I've solved the bug. I've got a great idea for my play, my, my music, whatever. I'll remember it in the morning. No, you won't. You know you won't. It doesn't. It, I wish. I wish, right? You know, I've written whole you know, symphonies in my head and I wake up. Oh, that's brilliant. I, I don't remember a damn thing about it when I wake up in the morning. So one really powerful notion is that you need to capture these ideas as soon as you have them. So always carry something on you, whether it's a little miniature pencil and a couple pieces of paper or note cards or, you know, something, you know, probably not your phone where you have to type, you know, maybe call your voicemail, leave yourself a message or, or dictate into a dictation app. But there's there's mechanisms because the brain's a self-modifying machine. If you get into the habit of capturing every idea that you think is relevant, even if it turns out not to be, but if you get into that habit of capturing everything, your brain's like, oh, you need more ideas like that? Here you go, boss. And it'll start giving you more ideas and more creativity. If you don't do that, that's like, eh, why bother? You know? And some little man in your brain says it's going to go to the back of your head and go watch old episodes of Lost or something. You know, it's just you know, not helpful. So, yeah, you need something to capture these ideas all the time as, as, as you're going through. And a lot of folks have written in to say when they started doing that or any of the other you know, sort of more formal um, tips in the book that they notice a difference. They, they, it's like, you know, they get stumped less often. Things come to them, breakthroughs, insights come to them more readily. Um, and that's, I mean, that's an amazingly powerful thing. Yeah. If we think about that story you were talking about at the top of the hour where uh, that guy, when you're growing up, be mowing the lawn and all of a sudden just run inside and, and go write something down. That's kind of the the R mode kind of being activated there. I think it's that that's like the, I don't know if it's like the default mode network. I don't know what the brain science name for that is, but uh, that's, it's interesting that that happens. Um, you also talked about in the book, um, I mean, you talk about so many awesome things in the book that I wouldn't expect somebody in tech to kind of read about or know about, right? Like, for example, morning pages, that's something I do every morning, Julia Cameron's morning pages. Um, I mean, even before I'd read Pragmatic Thinking and Learning, I already had read um, Hair Brain, Tortoise Mind, and a lot of the books that you referenced from uh, Stephen Pressfield. So how was it that you got interested in these type of books and how have they helped you in your journey? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I kind of stumble on these sort of interesting books by, by roundabout ways. So, you know, I think I came across the, uh, the Cameron book when I was looking at resources on writing and trying to teach other people to write well. So with our pragmatic bookshelf publishing you know, a lot of what we have to do is teach subject matter experts how to write effectively. Because, you know, you might be an expert on Rust or Elixir or data science or, you know, AI or whatever. That's absolutely no guarantee that you can write your way out of a paper bag. 
right? It's a different skill set. So, and this is another thing about Dreyfus, it's per skill. You might be an expert data scientist and a novice author, right? That happens. So, you know, we went through some research of, okay, how can we help folks? And, you know, what we really do, our development editors, a lot of what they do is train new authors to, to write better and to get the book out the door. So some stuff I, you know, came across from that, like like the Cameron work, I came while looking for resources to help authors. A lot of stuff when I was, you know, I gave talks on the Pragmatic Thinking and Learning book for maybe five years before I actually sat down and wrote the book. And, you know, when you're when you're looking into a subject, every every resource you look at, every book you read opens up a gateway to a couple other books and a couple other notions, and it starts to feed on itself. And there's actually, I talk about this in the book, there, there's, you know, ways, reasons that that actually works. Your brain, you know, it's related to sense tuning. Once you start looking into a subject, you start noticing more of that subject. So, you know, the random stumbling on these other resources wasn't so random. You know, I was looking at, at researching things in this area and, oh, this pops up and this guy has a footnote to this and this references this other thing. And, you know, you start going down the rabbit hole and stuff pops out like, wow, that's really interesting. Or in the case of this book, I would find very similar ideas in wildly different areas. So here's a book on meditation, which is saying the same thing as this MBA course is, is saying, which is the same thing that Julia Cameron is recommending, which is the same, you know, somewhere over here. And, you know, that struck a chord. It's like, okay, when you start finding similar ideas, similar notions spread across different fields, then odds are they're onto something. And that this is probably more of a human universal that, that bears investigating. But, and in some of it is, is just random luck. You know, you're talking to a friend and they, oh, I read this great book. You should read it. And you look at, but you have to read for that to happen. You know, if you're Elon Musk and you're reading five books a night, you know, maybe 80% of them are rubbish. Maybe it's, it's a book on, you know, South American economic theory that you'll never use or, or won't be relevant. And maybe it will be exactly that missing piece of the puzzle that you've been looking for. But if you don't read any books, you have no chance. You're not going to get anything. If you read a ton, you know, most all of it's going to be useful one way or another. Yeah, that's one thing I love about the podcast is that it really gives me an opportunity to speak to authors. But then in order to have a good conversation with them, I need to read their books. And as I read their books, I'll go through the references and pick up some other books. So from your book, uh, Whack on the Side of the Head is one that I picked up. This is a really good one. I got another one on the bookshelf sitting there. It's uh, how to solve it. So I'm excited to get into that one. So if you think about it, like, you know, if your brain is a, is a computer and we can say that maybe your belief system is like the software operating system that uh, runs on it, picking up new books could be uh, like software updates, little, little patches, right? Absolutely. So we'll do a last formal question before we jump into a real quick, uh, what I like to call the random round here. So it's 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? I'd like to think that, that people would remember that I was able to help people. I get fan mail literally all the time from folks that say I was instrumental in launching their career, in furthering their career, in pivoting their career, that I changed the course of their life. And it's really humbling to get that and realize that, you know, you're sitting here in your office, you know, kind of isolated alone, just churning out thoughts and words. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of books get sold and, and people are like, wow, you know, you made my career what it is. You know, you changed this, you affected that. And that's, 
that's really remarkable. And I really do consider myself very lucky to be in that position that, you know, I can research and find interesting things and people find it helpful, find it useful. (laughs) Interestingly, we've already got a plaque in Snowbird, Utah for the, the Agile Manifesto. There's a plaque up on the wall saying, you know, this was the room where everyone got together and wrote the manifesto. So, yeah, I'm already on a plaque. So that that's that's a start. Uh, that's a thing. But I'd also like to be remembered, you know, as someone who wasn't afraid to experiment, to try things. Um, I write the software books. Yes. Uh, and as you mentioned, I also write science fiction thrillers. Um, I enjoy writing and recording music in several styles, not just the uh, the, the ambient and electronic, but jazz you know, I play trumpet and flugelhorn, so I do a lot of jazz and brass stuff. Uh, I did an album of progressive rock the year before that, which was, uh, I really enjoy that. That's, that's a fun thing. I have a woodworking shop to get away from all the, the tech and experience a very different sort of problem solving. And I think that's important. I think everyone should be well-rounded and should try different things. And if, if I can lead by example and do that, you know, that'd be a great thing to be remembered for. Absolutely love that. And trust me, there's us that is lucky to have you where you are turning out these great books. So let's jump into a real quick random round here. Um, actually, before we do that, talk, talk to us real, real quick about this grows method that you're working on. I saw this on your website, but I haven't got a chance to dig uh, into it too much. Real quick at a high level, what is this? So the grows method is tries to be my answer to where the agile movement went wrong. And Part of the reason that the Agile movement went wrong was when we did the manifesto, these were very high-level abstract concepts. And that's great. And if you're an expert, if you're proficient, if you're high up on the Dreyfus model, you can understand and apply these sort of abstract generative principles. But everyone else can't. They need very concrete rules to follow. And so Scrum became very popular because, well, here's the rules. You just do this. And the problem is when, you, when you're a novice, when you're just following the rules, that limits you to novice levels of performance. You can't grow beyond that. So what you really need is more of a progression of starting with the rules, working up to recipes that would have more judgment involved, right? So rules say, you know, cook this for 20 minutes at 350. Recipe says cook until done. And now there's some judgment. Well, what does done mean? And here's some ways to test for it and think about it and whatnot. And up to, you know, more abstract principles. So grows is kind of a post-agile meta method. I wanted to take the ideas and lessons from the thinking and learning book and fuse them with modern CICD. So there's a lot about learning and feedback. Experiments are a first class part of the method, right? You have to do experiments. You have to do, you have to do three things. There's a three-track attack is one of the one of the practices. You have to deliver the software your team is responsible for, obviously, but you also have to revise how you're doing it. You have to actually adapt what the team's process is constantly. And you have to invest in researching the new tech. You have to invest in learning. You know, what are we going to do for the next, you know, the next release of this? Are we going to use the same tool set? Are we going to upgrade this? Are we going to change our architecture? Are we going to embrace microservices? Are we going to flee from microservices? Are we going to do, you know, what are we going to do? And the problem is most teams are so busy delivering, they don't have time for discovery and they don't have time for refinement. So they end up being stuck doing half of Scrum badly and changes whap them in the face like a wet fish because they're not prepared for it. They didn't get to experiment to try it. And, you know, too much of the time, it's like, well, 
Should we use this or that? And I'll get asked this in interviews. Should we use this tech or that tech? I have no idea. I don't know what your context is. I don't know what the skill level of your team is. There's no way I can advise you that you should or shouldn't do anything in particular. You need to determine that for yourself. You need to experiment with it, get the results, make small changes, get the feedback, and, and you work with it. So a lot of the, the notions and grows are how do you do that? effectively. And it's one thing to wave your hands and say, yes, you should experiment, but how? How do we actually do that? So that's what we kind of, of try to get to is, you know, try to promote these tools for thinking and working in complex adaptive environments. Because that at the bottom line, you know, going back to these like bureaucratic organizations that are assuming a very linear model, it doesn't work. You know, by systems thinking, the, the environments we find ourselves in, these aren't linear environments. They're complex adaptive environments, and you need the right tools to work with that. And, you know, other folks are discovering this too. There's a whole beyond budgeting movement where they're realizing that if, you know, oh, we're incremental, we're uh, iterative, we use Scrum, and we have annual budgets. Well, now you're not agile. That That's the wrong way to do it. There's other ways of achieving that, that are more agile and are better for the business. And there's a whole burgeoning movement that talks exactly about that. So yeah, it's all about how can we use better, the right tool for the job, complex adaptive tools instead of traditional linear tools. Definitely gonna have to dig a little bit deeper into that. That sounds exactly like what the data scientists need, right? We need to be able to operate not from a step-by-step printout, but we need to operate with a compass, not a map. We'll do a few rapid fire questions here from the random question generator. Hopefully you're able to see that on my screen here. First question here is what makes you cry? Oh, that's a good one. I'd say when the dog dies in the movie, maybe. <laughs> you know, we took the kids to see Marley and me when they were little and we didn't know oh. that, you know, and not only does the dog die, they spend like 45 minutes watching the damn dog die. And, you know, you're stuck there with your kids who you're trying to you know, shield and protect from the sort of harsh realities when they're you know, five or six or whatever. So, yeah, I'd say Marley, Marley was the dog, right? Yeah. Freaking Marley made me cry. Absolutely. <laughs> what fictional place would you most like to go to? I'm, I'm going to go with the cliche and say the bridge of the enterprise. All right. Nice. Nice. The last one here. What incredibly strong opinion do you have that is completely unimportant in the grand scheme of things? I detest rap music uh, and, and no one cares. I, I, literally nobody cares that I hate rap music. It's like, and that's fine. You know, and I can, I can wax poetic about the reasons for it. It's like, well, music is all about melody and harmonic motion and rand rhythm and rhythm's great. I got, I love rhythm. Rhythm's fantastic, but you need, you need melody on top of it and musical styles that don't have melody or have a very mundane, boring melody, like, like Gregorian chant. I'm not, not a fan of for sort of the opposite reason. You know, I like, I like all the components of music to be there, you know, harmony and melody and rhythm and harmonic motion and development and, you know, that sort of thing. And literally Nobody cares that I think that. <laughs> what do you What are you uh, listening to right now? What do you have on kind of repeat? Well, it's 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 funny. You know, and a lot of people put songs on repeat. That's actually not how I listen to music. I put on albums. Mm. You know, even in Spotify, uh, even on my my player, you know, I will queue up an album and listen to it start to finish. So, you know, I like artists who put in the effort to make an album, not just a set of songs. So I like a lot of Stephen Wilson's work with Porcupine Tree 
and his his solo albums, obviously, you know, classic rock, Pink Floyd, huge, huge Floyd and Dave Gilmore fan. Because again, these are you know, sort of longer excursions. Roach on on the ambient front, folks like that. But you know, I'm I'm not a huge fan of sort of the three minute thirty second pop song. I mean, it has its place, and and I there's there's some I love. You know, they're fine. But you know, especially if I'm sitting down for a long thinking session, I'll put on a Steely Dan album. I'll put on a Pink Floyd album. You know, I want that sort of longer experience. You know, it's more like, like watching a movie rather than, you know, a couple of short commercials kind of thing. And I do have, I have different music for different tasks. So if I'm writing fiction novel, I like to put on, you know, something that that's not very intrusive, something more, more like, like ambient or maybe some, you know, cocktail jazz level kind of stuff. Other activities I'll put on, Led Zeppelin or, you know, some, something, you know, sort of classic heavy metal kind of deal. Programming Steely Dan, big favorite. Because um, it's it's sort of, there's an interesting thing there. If you get something that's sort of complex enough, but you know it well, it helps detract. It's almost like meditation. It takes that that L mode and gives it something to do. It's mm-hmm. singing along, you know, following along with the, with the music and freeing up the rest of your brain to actually get some work done. So, but it's, it's a very fine line. You need something that you know well. If it's not like the worst thing to do is put like, you know, Spotify on shuffle on greatest hits of the XYZ decade. And, and now you're paying attention to it. And that's impossible. Like I can't work with that, with that going on. You know, it's a complex subject. <laughs> yeah, no, I know exactly. I know exactly what you mean. Andy, I'll be sure to link to your websites and your contact information on the socials in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come onto the show today. I really appreciate having you here. Thanks so much for having me.